Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Sundar Nyanavel and I am joined today by Dr. John Otesovi who is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Fraser Health Authority, a Surrey Memorial Hospital, British Columbia in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us today and we are going to be discussing your new paper which is titled Co-occurring Mental Disorder and Substance Use Disorder in Young People, Etiology, Assessment and Treatment. So welcome Dr. John. Oh, thank you so much and thanks for having me. It's been a great privilege to be able to publish in BJ Psych Advances. And so I'm really very pleased to be able to do this podcast with you today. So in the background of this paper is that it's essentially to provide an overview of the disorder and to highlight the current treatment approach. It also builds on the 2002 Rio College Commission report on dual diagnosis. So that's essentially what this paper is, is about, is to look at the different presentations, the risk factors associated with the condition, and also to highlight the challenges that clinicians face in managing dual diagnosis. Well, it was very useful to get a broad overview of the background behind this piece of work. Could you briefly take us through what the key messages from this paper are? But the key messages are to let people know that the lack of training in the management of dual diagnosis impacts significantly on the care of people with this disorder. We know that from training that not everyone, especially in child and adolescent psychiatry, would have had access to managing young people with severe mental illness as well as substance use disorder. So I, I believe that the way of looking at this is to ensure that everyone is fully aware of this condition. So the key messages include the risk factors associated with this condition. People need to know about the screening processes that youngsters have to go through when they present in healthcare setup. Also, for the clinicians and other practitioners, the healthcare or social care or schools, to know that there shouldn't be any impediments in the way young people access care for their dual diagnosis. So those are the key messages that I just wanted to highlight in the paper. Thanks, Dr. John. The, the work talks about the fact that a dual diagnosis inherently is multifactorial and there could be multiple uh, risk factors which might include genetic factors and environmental factors and some developmental pathways have been proposed in the paper. So in your clinical experience, how common are each of these developmental pathways? It is quite difficult for me to be exact in stating how common each one is. Remember that in most of the developmental pathways, there is no linear association. But if I were to give an estimate, I would probably say um, the self-medication or, or the secondary substance use is quite popular. What this means is that some people might self-report that they use some of these substances to manage their mental health problems, be it anxiety or depression. So most of the referrals will probably say, see this young person, 
who is self-medicating with cannabis for their mental health problems. Or the parents would also report something similar. Unfortunately, these patients are quite difficult to manage in this situation and prescribing SSRIs for their mental health difficulties do not seem to be very effective. For me, that seems to be the most common one out of the developmental pathways. Remember that I talked about different pathways in the paper. I talked about the common etiological factors, that is the risk factors common to both disorders. I also spoke about secondary mental disorder. So the second one here, after the self-medication developmental pathway, in my view, will be a secondary mental disorder. That is when substance use precipitates mental disorder. Mm-hmm. So for example, we're looking at things like cannabis and psychosis. And then another example might be visual disturbances that are associated with um, hallucinogens like LSD or magic mushroom. And so I'm just looking at it in the order of the prevalence in my practice. So self-medication will be on top of that. Then there will be a substance use, precipitating mental disorder. And then maybe after that, there might be the common etiological factors. And that is where there are risk factors that are common to both disorders. So things like ADHD and substance use or substance use and schizophrenia. Perhaps at the bottom of it will be the bidirectional feedback, and that is the presence of mental disorder contributing to the development of a substance use disorder and vice versa. So it's quite difficult. It's not an exact science. This is just based on my own clinical practice. And is there a possibility that there could be an overlap between these developmental pathways at some point of time? Oh, absolutely. As you know, there is usually no linear relationship in most complex psychiatric conditions. And remember that these developmental pathways are also affected by numerous environmental factors. Again, these were highlighted in the paper. So most of these uh, factors might be challenges that the individual may have experienced prenatally at birth, or the early years and adolescence. So we're talking about things like, you know, exposure to alcohol and and, and psychoactive substances in the womb, things like low birth weight, the parental support or lack of support, intellectual disability, all those ones tend to overlap. And what is again important is that dual diagnosis is quite common. It's not as uncommon as people think. So you might find that in certain populations, um, dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorder could be overrepresented. So we're looking at things like the LGBTQ community, we're looking at the homeless, and we're looking at the prisons. And to this again, have this substantial overlap has implications for prevention and for treatment. And at one point in your piece of work, it was quite interesting to note that management of dual diagnosis involves working in collaboration with the individual to develop and strengthen protective factors, which seems to be a a theme in uh, contemporary psychiatry where we have started to move from risk to uh, strengths and protective factors. So what type of strategies could be employed 
to facilitate or strengthen these protective factors when working with these patients. Well, as a child psychiatrist, it is usually what we always focus on, um, more to do with um, protective factors. Just let the listeners understand what I mean by those protective factors. Well, what I mean are just those characteristics of the individual or the environment that are there to reduce the effects of stressful life events. And so these factors will helpfully increase the individual's ability to avoid risks or minimize the hazards and to promote their ability to thrive in all aspects of their lives. So in dual diagnosis, there are recognized protective factors. So things like resilience, positive social orientation, being of above average intelligence and having access to a safe and nurturing environment. How do you strengthen this? Well, you have to have a multi-systemic approach. So this will involve different agencies again. We're looking at school, we're looking at social care, we're looking at healthcare organizations. Now, the most important thing, I believe, is the presence of a dependable and reliable adult. This is very important, again, looking back into the attachment theory. So when there is a reliable and dependable adult who can offer positive attachment, this would help to strengthen the protective factors. Ideally, these attachments should start in the early years. The next one will probably look at strengthening families. So we're kind of breaking it down into the individual and then the community. So strengthening families for there, there are groups or there are programs that we do something like like um, strengthening families for parents and youth program. And then I think in the UK it's called stronger families. In Canada, it's called the Strengthening Families for Parents and Young People's Program. And what does this do? It helps parents to develop trust, mutual respect, communication, and provision of safe and nurturing environment in order to build on the young person's resilience. Moving away from the home environment, you also look at school. We know that people with dual diagnosis are more likely to be excluded from school. So school connectedness is a very promising protective factor. How do you do this? It's about making sure that the physical environment is adequate, is to provide support for the child's learning, and again, to identify an adult who would provide this young person with a positive support and nurturing environment. The, the next thing I would say would be the impact of peer support. So if the child belongs to a positive peer group, this is more likely to help in enhancing the protective factors. This appears to be, you know, it may be quite difficult to achieve, but it's not insurmountable. So we need to recognize and acknowledge the young person's achievements. This also helps with improving the self-esteem and building resilience. So these are these several strategies to strengthen protective factors. I think that was a comprehensive range of strategies that you have proposed we could try on the ground. And I would concur with it reflecting on my past experiences. What are your thoughts about differences in comorbid diagnosis between males and females with substance use disorders? Is there a difference? Um, 
it's always a very tricky one to say is there really a difference um of course we, we know that in in females they they tend to to experience internalizing disorders such things like depression anxiety or ptsd compared to the males and the males tend to experience externalizing disorders such as you know, disruptive disorders condo disorder ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. But the reality that in clinical practice, the, the differences are not massive or, or significant just because these are the recognized factors or recognized disorders that tend to manifest in, in females. So we invariably see that females with dual diagnosis tend to present with internalizing disorders and males with dual diagnosis present with externalizing disorder. The, the evidence is quite missed, even in the literature. I have typically found it quite challenging talking about urine drug screening in adolescents. So what have been your challenging experiences around urine drug screening in adolescents, particularly in relation to ethical issues? So the things to really consider in urine drug screen would be that you have to be able to ensure that there is modesty, that you're protecting the the individual's dignity. So young people are rarely required to give urine drug sample under observation because you really want to maintain their dignity. The next thing is that we should also be aware of the limitations of urine drug tests. It could be negative even if the patient is using drugs, particularly when the test is done maybe two or three days after the last time the drugs were used. So you have to be familiar with the window of detection. So things like, you know, regular cannabis user may still have the cannabis in the system after a long period of time, but infrequent user, it might disappear after a couple of days. Also know that not all drugs will show in the urine sample. So things like ecstasy, for instance, or the inhalants like nitrous oxide, or even alcohol does not show in urine sample. There's always that tendency also for young people to be quite ingenious in the way they manage the urine drug screen. So sometimes they can over-dilute it, they can substitute it with somebody else's sample, especially when no one is watching. We do know that most regulatory bodies caution against involuntary drug testing in adolescents. So you can't do urine drug screen without the patient's consent, except, of course, it's an emergency or it's going to be helpful for this patient who is incapacitated or who lacks capacity for you to be able to take the urine sample without their permission. Now, in clinical practice, most clinicians would encounter parents who suspect that their child is using substances and would come in to request drug tests with or without the young person's consent. So when this occurs, we really need to be very tactful in the way we manage the situation. It has to be managed with care. Otherwise, one would lose the opportunity to engage a young person in treatment if the person is actually using substances. So when the parent comes in, what one has to do is to obtain more information about their concerns. 
then conduct a comprehensive assessment in order to formulate differential diagnosis and then determine whether a drug test may be helpful as part of the assessment. So there are different stages that one has to follow. So there has to be transparency, there has to be clear information, you have to manage expectations. You have to be clear about the limitation of the drug test what's going to happen in the urine drug screen, what will happen when there's positive result at the end of the, the urine drug screen, what will happen if the urine drug screen is negative. All these things have to be discussed before you proceed to conduct urine drug screen. This will help with transparency. This will help to make the intervention much more easier to implement whatever the outcome. Now, the parents, again, need to be made aware that the positive urine drug screen doesn't mean that this person is using drugs now or helps her to understand the pattern of use or the presence of abuse or the dependence. In the same way, a negative test does not indicate that the person has not used drugs. I'm sorry I've gone on and on about this because I think it's very important to understand those ethical dilemmas that one has to face in doing this urine draw screen. Just want to give you a few scenarios where things might change. So if the parents say, well, we would like Little Johnny to have urine draw screen, we would really, really concerned about the company that he keeps, he's really agitated, is restless. And Johnny says, yeah, I would like to do urine draw screen. So they've given consent, which is fine. But they might say, well, I do want you to share the results with my parents. And so this is, you have to respect their wishes and their confidentiality. You, so this, again, you have to discuss with a young person and say, look, this is the situation. And after the assessment, if you find that this individual is at risk or there's imminent danger, then you can have an open and honest conversation with the young person to say, you know, I'm quite concerned about drug use and I think maybe if there are risk issues, you have to then break confidentiality and share with the parents. But you have to let the parents know that there are privileges that could be withdrawn, for instance. So if, for instance, the young person has driver's license and maybe driving, you might want to withdraw their privileges for driving. And these privileges may be restored when this young person can reasonably demonstrate that he is or she is no longer using substances. So that's one example. So the kid is consenting, but is saying, do not share with my parents. But if the kid is saying, I'm not consenting, I don't want to do this drug test, I don't want you to discuss anything with my parents, that's still fine. It's an, it's an opportunity to do a thorough assessment, understand the substance use, assess for mental disorder, and check that this patient is not at risk. So this kind of gives us an opportunity to work with the young person. So you have to critically appraise the situation, address the considerations about the specifics of the case, and then make a decision about urine drug screen. Moving on further, so there are different different challenges in managing dual diagnosis in adolescents, but are there any specific challenges uh, when dealing with adolescents with a dual diagnosis within the criminal justice system? Oh, yes. Again, this is another uh, big aspect. We, we do know that uh, there's a, a disproportionate number of individuals with mental disorder and a substance use disorder in the criminal justice system. Even though they're in prison, 
they may not have had opportunity to be diagnosed with mental disorders. Some may also have intellectual disability that's undiagnosed. And the challenges are that these individuals often commit violent offenses and they have higher rates of reoffending. So they're quite difficult to treat because there's the risk of relapse, there's the risk of reoffending. They are more likely to commit violent crimes when under the influence. The treatment is essentially the same. So we're looking at the usual principles of having a highly structured treatment program, having supervision services, but these programs have to be extended in the duration of support. And then you have to work on various motivations and engagement and helping these individuals to understand how their substance use affects their criminal behaviors. For the young females, we found that they tend to have history of trauma, PTSD, and those kind of conditions also require specific support in their own rights. So some of them may also need to have access to education, of course. So it's, again, it's multidisciplinary approach and it has to be holistic, but could be quite challenging. Uh, moving on to the management, I think your work discussed the pros and cons of uh, different models in managing dual diagnosis, substance use with the mental health uh, disorder. But you also mentioned that the integrated model in general seems to be the gold standard to aim for. But what are the challenges in developing an integrated model? It's not really perfect, the integrated model, to be honest. But if you're going to look at the challenges, you've got to look at different levels. So to the, the strategic vision of the organization is important. Then you look at the operational planning and then the, the service delivery. So these challenges will follow through those categories. So the strategic, the operational and the service delivery. Now, if you've got different organizations funding a service, you're going to recognize that they are going to have different cultures or ideologies or philosophies. So that in itself is going to cause some conflict. So for instance, the social worker may not have received similar training as a psychiatrist or the CBN. So they're going to come with different mindset about how the situation should be managed. So in terms of the delivery, there might be this kind of professional boundaries that appear to sometimes can be quite rigid, but this is often dependent on their regulatory bodies. So everyone is being mindful of not doing what is not permissible by their regulatory bodies. The training is different. And sometimes there might not be clarity of roles and responsibilities. And so these things are very important. These are the commodity challenges. The, the biggest challenge I think I've found is the, because we do really despair in some of the instances where the patient is not making rapid progress because people expect in these days where there are not enough resources, the different services or the funding organizations are very clear about the number of sessions the person should have. And once they have exceeded those sessions, it becomes quite hard to justify keeping them going in the, within this, the service. So those are the kind of challenges that we do face. But 
Just to be clear, these challenges are not insurmountable. It would require a lot of working together, training together, sharing ideas and being able to communicate in a very transparent manner. So when integrated services work, they work really well. But we have to be clear about the roles and responsibilities across the service providers and also the funding partners. I think that that highlighted uh, there there are quite a few challenges, but as you described, they are not insurmountable and sharing ideas and working together can help in establishing such a model. Any final take-home messages, John, for the audience? I just want to say, one, that adolescents with concurrent disorder often have multiple needs. We should please always remember that. So it be mental, be medical, be social, be education. That is very important for us to remember. We should continue to advocate for them. Policymakers, they need to know and acknowledge the existence of dual diagnosis and also recognize its impact on the society. There shouldn't be a wrong door. So wherever you come through in the service, whether it's through education or through health or through social care, it shouldn't be the responsibility of the individual to navigate the services. Wherever the patient presents, I think they should have someone to help them, to get them the right care, rather than moving them from one service to another and then letting them fall through the cracks. It's just not fair. So what I'm saying is that the focus should be on the person's presentation. It should be a holistic approach. It shouldn't be put in different compartments. There should be ongoing training for staff so that they can improve their skills and improve their confidence in managing um, dual diagnosis. Trainees need to have this opportunity. This idea of having one department just for mental health and the other department for substance use without helping to bring the two together is not going to help with training. Even though you know we talked about integrated service, that is the ideal. Where it's not possible, it shouldn't be an obstacle. We should still look at how we can support the mainstream service like the CAMS team. They, they can be supported to learn more about dual diagnosis and this can be shared amongst different services, schools, the social care. So in my final message would be that early recognition of dual diagnosis improves the outcome and that there is hope for people with dual diagnosis, especially those who engage with treatment. We know that with adequate support, people with dual diagnosis can achieve stability in their functioning. That would be my take-home message. Those take-home messages are indeed valuable. John, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I am sure that it will be very interesting and very useful for all our readers. And the accompanying paper is available in BJ Psych Advances and it's titled Co-Occurring Mental Disorder and Substance Use Disorder in Young People, Etiology, Assessment and Treatment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.